So if you are there with me, uh, Roman, or sorry, Hebrews chapter 2, we're going to read this first four verses. And what you'll see as we go today, we need to look at the context, so we'll look at the few verses that come before and we'll look at the verses that come after, but here is the crux, here is one of several warnings that the preacher makes to his uh, congregation, probably a congregation that he helped to start, he is intimately familiar with, he understands what they must be going through, but yet he's not with them in person, and so he writes them this letter that's more of a sermon, and he would have wanted it to be presented to the church. And so he encourages them, warns them, exhorts them, and here's what he says, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, we must play much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So what's going on here? What is the writer of Hebrews trying to tell us? Well, what we remember from last week, if you were here, is that God has spoken a unique and final and encompassing message of his grace and mercy through and by his son, Jesus. We talked about that last week, that God has communicated to us uniquely in the person of Jesus Christ, the person, his work on the cross and in the resurrection. And so, the preacher says, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. So we're right back where we started last week of this communication But we need to pay much closer attention. And so, then he says this very interesting and probably confusing passage to most of us. He says in verse 2, For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just retribution, What is he talking about, this message declared by angels? I'm going to try to explain that uh, very quickly. Um, Angels in Jewish circles in the early church were believed to be real. And I believe if you are an Orthodox Christian, even today, we believe that angels are real. These are spiritual beings that exist in the world. They were created by God, created for specific tasks in service of God, in worship of God. And at the time when this was written, the Jewish community had a special understanding of how, in the Old Testament, angels had been in some way responsible for the delivery of the law. The law of Moses, which was to say the religious practices and rules and rituals of the Jewish people. And so they had this understanding that angels were responsible for helping to deliver that message. 
And so like we saw last week when it says God communicated to us in many times in many ways through the prophets, in a similar way, it's saying that same message delivered to us by the angels proved to be reliable. But there's another message, right? We talked about that last week. Another message that has been communicated through Jesus. And in the Old Testament, there was a kind of salvation that had been communicated by the law. And there's a type of salvation that's now communicated in the new covenant through Jesus. So that's the context and the framework. And if we look back to chapter 1, we'll see what the author of Hebrews is doing is showing how in every way Jesus himself is superior to the angels. You've got to remember, the angels are held in high regard, as they should be, created by God, created to worship him and serve him, powerful spiritual beings. But Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater. So turn to chapter 1 and look in verse 4 with me. It says, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. The name he has inherited. And what is that name? It goes on. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And what you'll see is you'll see in your Bible that these uh, are references. References to what? They're indented. They're references to the Old Testament. So you are my son, today I have begotten you, is a reference to Psalm chapter 2, the second Psalm. He says this, or again, and he quotes 2 Samuel 7, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Now, what is he saying here? He's trying to explain how Jesus is superior to the angels. So what does a son have to do with it? Well, there's no name that a person can be given that is more powerful than son. How many of you in here watch the Game of Thrones? Shame on you. No, don't worry about it. (laughs) I watch the Game of Thrones, but it's only uh, for cultural exegesis. Now, the thing about... The Game of Thrones is that it's actually a great way to understand this context that's being spoken of here. This idea of the sun. Um, If you don't watch the Game of Thrones, you don't need to watch it. Just ask somebody about it. Now the the thing is, uh, this idea of the sun. You can be a servant to uh, the the lord of the house. Uh, but to be his son had some special significance. I mean, you, you were the one to in- inherit everything that was the father's. Everything that was the father's. And so how are the angels different than Jesus? Well, they're simply servants, or even you might say knights of the king, but they're not the son. The son is of special importance. Now, look with me at the next uh, chunk of quotations here. Verses 7 to 9 says this. Of the angels, he says, that's God, and he quotes Psalm 104 here, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. Difficult to understand, but basically what he's saying is angels are servants, as I said, with specific tasks, and their tasks is ministering to and serving 
the people of God. But look at verse 8 and 9. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. So the angels have specific tasks that God has given them, important tasks, no doubt. But of the Son, of Jesus, he says, I haven't given you a specific task. I've given you rule over all the tasks of the kingdom because you sit on the throne. You see the difference here? Jesus is superior to the angels. Now look at verse 10 through 12. And, again quoting the Psalms, Psalm 102. You, Lord, laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same. And your years will have no end. Here's the idea. Jesus is not only superior to the angels, he's superior to every created being. In fact, he's superior to all creation because he had his hand in the creation itself. He himself is not created. He is eternal. He is one with God, the Father. He has no shelf life. He has no beginning, no end. He's the Alpha, the Omega, forever and ever. This is the Jesus whom we've heard communicated by God. He's superior to the angels. Now, why is it so important to see that Jesus is superior to the angels? Why is it so important to understand how and why Jesus is so superior to the angels? We'll look now at verses uh, 114, and then we'll, look, uh, we'll skip the section we read at the beginning. We'll look at 2, 5 through 9. Read uh, verse 14 with me. Are they, speaking of the angels, not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? Now jump down to, uh, with me to verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is a man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you would care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels, you crowned him with glory and honor, but everything, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his, that's Jesus, control. At present we do not see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor. What's happening here? Both angels and Jesus are responsible for a type of salvation. A type of salvation. And when we come to verse 3, we read, How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation, 
Now the question is, what types of salvations are each uh, responsible for? When you read verse 14, you see that the type of salvation that the angels are responsible for is to be ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who inherit salvation. God sends them out to minister to us. And they do. We don't understand exactly how, but they do minister to us and provide real salvation from real things that we struggle with in this life. That's a type of salvation. And the angels provide it. But when we jump down to chapter 2, verse 5, we see that it was not the angels that God subjected the world to come. The world to come. So when we look at these two salvations, we have a very temporary, specific type of salvation that the angels provide. But when we look at Jesus, we see a very eternal, all-encompassing, all things under his control. And there is no end to his reign. And that's why it's so important to see that Jesus is superior to the angels and how he is superior. Because his salvation, the great salvation spoke of in chapter 3, is not a temporary salvation. And it's not limited to specific areas. It's all-encompassing. It is truly a great salvation. So read with me again verse 3. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation. When we receive this message communicated to us by God the Father, by the Son Jesus, we must be very exceedingly careful not to neglect it. So this phrase here in in verse 1, pay much closer attention. Pay very close attention to this message that has been spoken to us by God. Be alert. Consider carefully. Continue to believe what you've already believed. Continue to give yourself to it. That's that's what the idea there is uh, in the word used for pay attention. And what do we pay attention to? We pay attention to what we have heard. To what we have heard. And this thing that we have heard is the message of great salvation. It's the message found in Jesus It's the gospel. It's the gospel. And who delivered us this message? Look at the end of verse 3. It was declared at first by the Lord, the Lord being Jesus, and then it was attested to us by those who heard, that is, the apostles, the disciples who followed Jesus. And verse 4, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit. So here's what he's saying. This is the message given to us by Jesus. He's the one who gave it to us first. We've got to do something with this Jesus, the most famous man that's ever uh, lived. What was it that he brought? What message did he bring? And then there's the apostles who are responsible for the writing of the New Testament. What have they said about this message? 
And then God himself through signs and wonders. And what we see as we read the book of Acts and what we understand as we look at the history of Christianity is that it's not just a stagnant message, but God continually promotes it through his own power and work, proving to those who hear it that it's a special kind of message. Now, there's something else very important about this idea of hat that you have heard. It's actually, uh, the verb used here is in the passive voice. The passive voice, which is to say that hearing the message has nothing to do with us. It's not active voice. We aren't the ones that are so special that we have heard, but having heard that we had the message delivered to us. It's passive voice, meaning we did not, we were not the actors in this great drama of the message coming to us. We were simply the subject. The message came upon us. It wasn't because we were smarter or cleverer. We weren't better listeners than the rest. It was a gift of communication from God. And I think that's so important to remember when we think about receiving this message that we don't give ourselves the credit, that we give God all the credit for receiving the message. In our fellowship group this week, we talked about that. Man, what a great gift to have heard the message of the gospel. So often we ask God, why haven't you done this or done that? Or why didn't you communicate in these ways or that, that way? Instead of getting on our knees and praising God, thank you that I have heard your communication of your grace, of your forgiveness, of your love for me. How often do we just thank God that we have heard the message? And the message is a message of great salvation. A greater salvation than exists anywhere else. So what exactly is the content of this great salvation? Well, first, look at verse 2. For since the message declared by the angels proved to be reliable and every transgression of disobedience received its just retribution. Here's what he's saying. He's saying we know that in the law of the Old Testament that we've been given by God, the law that we've been given, that sin is real and that all sin must be dealt with. We know that that's true. Speaking to a congregation that would have known the Old Testament and what it taught and how God dealt with sin. So sin is real and it has to be dealt with. If you, has anybody ever lied in here? Okay. If, if, you, if you think or said no, then that's your second lie. Everyone has lied, right? That's one of the laws of the Old Testament. Has anyone ever murdered? I see you, Ben Creelman, in the back. All right. It's okay. God forgives that. That's like three weeks in a row I've called you out, Ben. I'm sorry. It's just you sitting right there so I can see you. Yeah. The law taught us that every transgression, every disobedience against God deserves punishment. 
And so what he's saying here is like the law, this great message that we've been given about the salvation that comes through Jesus also deals with every transgression and disobedience and that every transgression or disobedience must receive retribution. The difference is how that happens. And we know, if we know the gospel, the message declared that Jesus has dealt with the sin of everyone, past, present, and future, on the cross. And then he declares it finished through the resurrection. So the salvation that is so great that we must not neglect is a salvation out of sin. It's also a salvation out of suffering. Not from suffering, but out and through suffering. Through suffering. Why do I make a point of that? It's not, a, it's not salvation from suffering. The Bible never promises that. Suffering is a human problem. Everyone suffers. And so we don't want to preach a salvation of avoidance. We don't want to preach a gospel of comfort or escapism. The escape that the preacher speaks of is not an escape from sin, it's an escape or suffering, it's escape through it. So you won't avoid suffering in this life, but the salvation deals with it. And here's how we know. Here's how we know. Look at uh, chapter 2, verse 9. But we see him who was made a little lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it is fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist is bringing many sons to glory uh, in, in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering perfect through suffering so when we understand properly the gospel of Jesus what we see happening is that Jesus himself embraces suffering He doesn't try to avoid it or escape it or find some way around it. He realizes that only through suffering comes the completion of the salvation which God has promised through him. And so he is made perfect through his suffering. That's what makes the message of Jesus such good news. Salvation is made possible by Jesus Because he has suffered for us. Does that make sense? Not by pretending that it isn't real or not dealing with it. His salvation is so great because he goes right through the suffering that had to happen in order that our suffering is not meaningless. The greatest salvation is only found in the crucible of trial and tribulation, and we see that in the gospel of Jesus. And finally, 
What is this great salvation? Why is this salvation so much greater than all other types of salvation? Even the salvation ministered to us through the angels. This is the big one. Jesus' salvation is a salvation out of death. Out of death. Look at chapter 2, verse 9. So that, last, last half of the verse, so that by the grace of God, he, that's Jesus, might taste death for everyone. That he might taste death for everyone. Um, do you realize that death is all around? I think most of us don't realize that death is all around us. I was reminded of that this week. I don't know if any of you are basketball fans. I've always been a basketball fan. In fact, uh, you can hate me for this. I've always been a Lakers fan. And uh, come on. (laughs) And uh, yeah, it's the lowest of the low. I know. But uh, it's what I was. And I still am, actually, even though they're no good anymore. Um, And uh, the Lakers had a player on for several years uh, named Lamar Odom. And I don't know if you know... Uh, about what happened to him this week, but they found him in a Las Vegas brothel, half dead. And uh, he had overdosed on several different drugs. And now he's currently fighting for his life in a Las Vegas hospital. But um, as I was listening and reading articles about what had happened, I was reminded that this is a cat who had a hard life. His dad was a drug dealer when he was growing up and left the family when he was just a boy. His mother died of colon cancer when he was 12. He went to live with his grandmother. She then died in 2013 when he was in his mid-20s. In 2009, his six-month-old son, Jaden, died of sudden death, uh, sudden infant death, SIDS. In 2011, Odom uh, his, his cousin was killed, was shot and killed. And then driving home from his cousin's funeral, he was sitting in the back seat of his SUV, and his SUV hit a motorcycle, same day as the funeral. And the motorcycle skidded off the road and hit a young 12-year-old boy standing on the sidewalk. And that 12-year-old boy was killed. In 2013, within two weeks of each other, two of Odom's closest friends were killed. In a 2011 uh, Los Angeles Times interview, Odom said this, death always seems to be around me. I've been burying people for a long time. What if you were Lamar Odom? What if you realized that death was all around you? What would that feel like? What kind of crisis would that create in you? Everyone around you is dying. Look at Hebrews 2, verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he, that's Jesus himself, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, 
that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. When you realize how close death is, when you realize that it's crouching at your door, when you, when you, when you realize that at any moment life can be taken from you, There's a fear that rightly should come over you. I believe Lamar Odom had that fear. And that fear of death creates in us a kind of slavery that rules us, that we cannot overcome. The fear of death is slavery. Unless what? We know somebody who's overcome it. When the fear of death overtakes us, we'll turn to a lot of things, but there's only one thing that we can turn to that has ever overcome it, and it's the one who has tasted death. Tasted death. I love the pictures that that conjures up, at least in my mind. I think of a wine connoisseur, my good friend Isaac over here. I'm not sure if you're good at this or not. But the one who can taste wine without being overcome by it. The one who can taste wine and enjoy wine without having it rule their life. Who is greater? The one who can taste or the one who always gets drunk? Jesus doesn't avoid death, he tastes it for us, and he overcomes it. And so in every way he becomes like a brother, understanding all that we've been through, all that we've suffered. He can look at Lamar Odom and say, I've tasted death like you've tasted death, and I've, come, I've, I've overcome it. This is why Jesus, why his salvation is the greatest, is greater than any salvation that's out there. Now, what do we do when we rightly understand this great salvation that we've heard preached by God through His Son? What do we need to do? We need to pay very close attention to it, right? Lest what? Verse 1. We drift away. We drift away. The preacher says, don't neglect this salvation. Don't neglect this salvation. Stop neglecting this great salvation that you've heard of in Jesus. And I think oftentimes what neglect looks like in our lives is a drifting away. It's not a conscious necessarily neglect. It's just drifting away. Drifting away from those things that are good. And that term in verse 1, drift away, literally is, is this concept of like driftwood floating by in the river. If I'm having a crisis of faith, 
Maybe it's because I'm neglecting the salvation that I've already heard about. I remember when I was a kid, I used to, you know, if you've ever been uh, out to the ocean and you're swimming in the ocean, maybe you've got a flotation device and you're just kind of floating out there and it's so nice and it's so hot and the sunscreen's running down your eyes and so you just close your eyes just for a second and you maybe just relax and you're just uh, floating there. And all of a sudden, you wake up and you, you don't even remember <laughs> how long you've been asleep. And you've drifted down the beach. And your parents, they come running up to you, finally. Where have you been? They're cursing at you, probably. <laughs> Snot is coming out of their nose. We've been looking everywhere for you. We didn't know what happened to you. What if you had drowned? What have you done? Actually, you answer, I've done absolutely nothing. I've just been floating. Is that a very good excuse? When you've put your parents through hell, as you've drifted down the beach, is your drift a good excuse? Your drift is your neglect. It's a terrible excuse. In every situation. Another thing that I thought about this week, I was thinking about this idea of neglect and drift, is the idea of uh, being lost at sea in a life raft, okay? Probably most of us have never been lost at sea. But I often think about life with this picture of being lost at sea. Now, sometimes we don't even realize that we're lost. I mean, for some of us, being lost at sea does feel like being in a life raft, you know, the great book and movie, Unbroken. And we know that we're lost and we're waiting for rescue. But other times, being lost at sea feels like just drifting along in a million dollar yacht. Still other people, being lost at sea feels like all you've got is a life jacket and you're drowning at every moment as the waves come over you. So I don't know what drifting at sea has felt like for you in the past or feels like for you now, but I think this is a great picture of what this idea of crisis is, and sometimes we don't even know it. And so I've often uh, loved the analogy that, Je I mean, I should love it, Jesus used it. It's the analogy of, of, of uh, the people of God, the city of God uh, being a city on a hill. Jesus says it this way in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. And when we read these words, uh, at least for me, the way I've always pictured it, because I've always had this idea of the sea and being lost at sea in mind. I think of the city on a hill sitting on a bluff right on the coastline. And if we're doing what we're supposed to do as a church, it should be a bright light so that anybody that drifted by this coastline would see land, even when it's night and dark. Philippians 2 says that God, um, uh, uh, God describes in Philippians 2 that a people of God should be bright, shining like the stars in the night. And the stars in the night give guidance, of course, when you're lost at sea. So you put these pictures together and you picture uh, being lost at sea and floating by and seeing the city on a hill. And the night is dark and the sea is cold 
and the waves are shifting. And maybe we realize that we're directionless, and maybe we realize that we need rescue and salvation and warmth and the embrace of the city of God, but maybe we don't realize. Perhaps we have fallen asleep when we drift by the city on a hill. Perhaps we're too busy focusing on some other immediate salvation in our life. Maybe we're trying to fish off the side of the boat to get dinner for that night and we drift by and miss the city. We miss the light. Or perhaps we see the light and for some reason we say, I want nothing to do with that city or that light. So we drift on by. How many times have we drifted by the city of God? How many times have we neglected to stop and embrace the love of that city, the light of that city? And how many times are we going to keep drifting by? We must pay close attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. For since the message delivered by the angels proved to be reliable, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Verse 9 says this, but we see him. We see Jesus. We see the Son, the King of glory, the King of the city, the one who has tasted death, the one who is made perfect by his suffering, the one who is tempted in every way without sin, the one who calls us brother. We must see Jesus. And we must stop neglecting the message that we see in him. When man is faced with the ultimate transcendence and holiness of God, when we're made aware that our ethical and our religious endeavors are but illusions and that our present situation is one of crisis, is one of divine judgment coming upon all of our disobedience and our transgression, and that our endeavors cannot draw us back to God, when we feel this crisis, this crisis that's so central to the gospel of Jesus, when we realize it, when we realize that we're lost at sea and we're drifting, and that we're separated from God, and we're incapable of righteousness in our own efforts, and that righteousness belongs to God alone, We need to see Jesus. We need to hear the message that's been given to us. We've got to stop neglecting it. We need to see clearly that the lesser objects of our faith, whether that be angels or the law or the religious ritual that we are partaking in, whether it's higher education or our superior bank account or the Dow Jones or romantic relationship, whatever it is, 
that we put our faith in, we have to see that it's not enough for salvation. Yes, it might provide temporary salvation in certain ways and at certain times, but it's not the great salvation that we find in Jesus. The salvation that is unending, that covers everything in life. We should be in a state of fear if we do not accept that salvation because we have nothing to deal with the biggest problem of all, which is death. We've got to see Jesus. We have to hear the message of Jesus. He is the only solution. He is the only Son of God. He is the only heir to the throne. He is the only one that calls us brother and sister. He is the only one that's provided us the great salvation. Salvation that covers every crisis and every fear. So I want you to ask yourself three questions. Does the holder of your faith, whoever you've given your faith to, does the holder of your faith deliver temporary salvation or permanent salvation? I want you to ask, is there a shelf life to the promises that they've offered? Does the object of your faith touch every area of your life? And every area of life to come. Hebrews 2, 14 through 6, uh, 18 says this. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook in the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he has made, he has been made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become merciful and faithful, a high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted." Jesus has tasted everything. He's touched everything. Nothing is outside of his purview. Nothing, not even death, is beyond his experience. That's why his promises are greater. That's why his salvation is greater. Nothing is greater than what he offers. So why do you keep neglecting that salvation? What salvation are you holding out for? What possibly could be better than what Jesus has offered? And yet, I know I do this all the time. I neglect it. And I pick something else to stand in the place of Jesus in my life. I wonder if I'm alone. In Matthew chapter 14, Jesus walks on water. It says this, But the boat by, the time, uh, by this time was a long way from the land. Jesus had sent out his disciples ahead of him. 
beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified, and they said, It is a ghost. And he cried out, and they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. There's coming a day, my friends, when you'll experience a crisis of faith, when you'll realize that you're lost at sea and you'll be afraid and the fear of death will overtake you. The power of it will encompass every part of your being and what will you do? What will you turn to? Who will you cry out to save you? In that moment, take heart, Jesus says. I am not a ghost. I'm not a ghost of your childhood. I'm not a ghost of your upbringing. I'm not a ghost of some outdated religious tradition in the country in which you live. I am real and I'm alive. And he'll say the same thing to you that he said to the disciples. It is I. Don't worry. Don't fear death. I've tasted it and I've overcome it. It did not take me. It is I. Do not be afraid. Let's pray. Father, we are afraid of a lot of things. We're afraid that we've made bad decisions, bad choices. We're afraid that our sin will keep us from you. We're afraid that death is knocking at our door. We're afraid that we don't have all the answers. We're afraid of so much. But in our fear, Lord, we pray that you would be there reminding us that it's you. Reminding us of the message that we've received. Reminding us that you've tasted death and you've overcome it. Reminding us that you've offered this great salvation to all who will simply accept it. God, I pray for myself and for my friends that when we're in a crisis, and probably many of us here tonight are in crisis, that we wouldn't turn to some lesser salvation, something to numb the pain, something to distract us, something to provide us a temporary salvation, but that we turn to you, that we simply ask you to do in our life what you've already, what you've already done, And that in that moment when we surrender to you, that the hope, that the promises of the unseen would flood us with a confidence and a joy knowing that you provide the greater salvation. We pray this because of what you've already done. In Jesus' name, amen.